This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, I'm joined by Monik Suri, founder and CEO of Therma. In your own words, could you describe to me what Therma is and what you do? Yeah, uh, so I'm the founder and CEO of a technology startup called Therma. Uh, we build smart cold chain technologies to overhaul the refrigeration supply chain, trying to create cleaner and more sustainable cooling in ways that advance human health while protecting the planet's health. And we use a combination of technologies, IoT sensors, uh, data analytics, and uh, web and mobile tools to help reduce waste of product, energy, and refrigerants across the cold chain. Those three products, energy and refrigerants have a business ROI and they're also big drivers of global warming. Uh, in total, they represent around uh, 7% of fall uh, warming, which is a big number. And the refrigeration supply chain is growing um, you know, at 15% Kager because so much of the world that's developing wants refrigerated products, fruits and vegetables, proteins, drugs, vaccines, uh, and so refrigeration is growing massively, already a big source of emissions, has many failure points. We're trying to help reduce that waste in ways that you know allow these important goods to get to humans while you know also protecting the planet. If you could touch upon what are some of the failure points? Absolutely. So we focus at Therma on uh, a few areas of the cold chain. We focus uh, in particular on the food supply chain uh, as compared to the pharmaceutical supply chain. Uh, and within the food supply chain, we focus uh, closer to the fork than the farm. Uh, but the cold chain is massive and you know, there's many failure points. I can talk about some of the broader failures and then what we see in our corner of the cold chain. In total, uh, the, the cold chain is responsible for, refrigeration is responsible for about 15% of all electricity consumed uh, in the US. So it's a huge source, a single source of electricity. And uh, as a result, the energy footprint of refrigeration is pretty significant. And one of the failure points, one of the issues we see is uh, lots of uh, inefficiency in when and how things get cooled. You have, in some cases, undercooling, which leads to spoilage and waste. In other cases, overcooling, which, which uses up more power than is necessary. Um, so there's not a lot of optimization. You know, we often talk about how refrigeration is dumb. Um, it's still run the same way as it was 100 years ago in many ways. You know, you plug it in, you put a, a set point, and you let it go. And uh, we think there's opportunities to make that uh, smarter, to create more intelligence by optimizing settings, by learning from past behavior, by looking at um, loss events and, and figuring out what happened. Another huge source of uh, failure is uh, downtime. Refrigeration downtime, when the asset itself or the equipment goes down, you have uh, spoilage. 
and uh, often uh, waste. Uh, things get spoiled or get thrown out entirely. Uh, food waste, to use the food uh, supply chain, is a huge problem. Food is one of the biggest single sources of emissions in, you know, in all you know, economic areas of the world activity. And 33% of food gets thrown out every year. So if you think about that, it's like we're using huge amounts of resources to grow stuff and then to get it to people and put it in their you know, fridges and in their plates. And a third of everything we make, we throw out. And not, you know, not all of that is because of supply chain. A lot of that is because of consumption. Um, and um, some of that is also because of lost at the, you know, at the production level, right off of the farm or right out of the water. But a lot of that, you know, we think around 15%, according to uh, Boston Consulting Group's uh, pretty expansive report on food waste a couple of years ago, around 15% of that number is preventable because of supply chain issues uh, related to storage and handling. And that's where we focus, you know, that piece, which is still a very large number. When you're talking about you know, trillions of pounds of food representing hundreds of billions of dollars a year thrown out, a small dent in terms of preventing waste and preventing loss can, can be pretty meaningful. And there's three sources of, of that, that loss. There's power outages or, you know, power issues, equipment failures, which are a whole range of reasons, wiring, compressors, refrigerant leaks, uh, cooling, it's, uh, you know, fans and evaporators that, that need maintenance, and then human error. Uh, people unplugging stuff to clean it, forgetting to plug it back in, uh, people turning things off uh, for the weekend, forgetting to turn them back on, uh, doors being left open, door gems that are loose. And so when you take grid failures, which happen, you know, brownouts and blackouts happen all over the world quite a bit, increasingly happening in the developed world, unfortunately, uh, combined with equipment failures, combined with human errors, you have a certain amount of waste that just occurs as you know, part of the way business has been done. And because refrigeration is generally not being monitored in real time, in again, a dumb uh, infrastructure layer, many businesses just end up internalizing that cost. It's like, oh, we had another spoilage event. We had another loss event. Okay, that just goes into our inventory cost. And that's we think that's low-hanging fruit. Like That's absolutely preventable. And so those are two of the big inefficiencies, energy, is uh, inefficiently used, sometimes undercooled, sometimes overcooled, and a product gets wasted because of a whole set of factors around the actual grid, the equipment, and human uh, factors, human errors. Fascinating. Um, often when you, at least how it's typically presented in the media or, the, or to the public is that food waste is an individual, or consumers problem. Um, and it's not really touched upon as an industry-wide product problem or industries, multiple industries and how it's really impacting more than individual households. So this is fascinating to me. Um, what, if you can talk through the tech that you provide and how it works and um, if you have any customer stories that you could or client stories that you could share. Absolutely. And uh, I'll try and, I, I won't get too technical, but I'll try and provide a high level, happy to go deeper. The uh, Therma platform in, we, we think of Therma as a backronym or an acronym that we came up with after the fact. It's 
temperature, humidity, energy, remote monitoring application. That's Therma. Um, we use uh, IoT, Internet of Things sensors that connect uh, real-time data from inside a fridge or a freezer or a walk-in or a display case to get the real-time temperature and humidity uh, collected and reported. That's the fundamental wireless low cost, reliable sensors that can get signal out of the inside of refrigeration interiors. That's fairly, it sounds fairly straightforward, but it's actually pretty novel. The reason being that wireless technologies weren't able to get signal out of the inside of a fridge or freezer until very recently. Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and generation one wireless connectivity layers couldn't get a signal out of the iron or steel siding of a fridge or freezer, which is why almost none of the companies we work with had wireless monitoring. We work with companies like McDonald's, Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, Domino, 7-Eleven, Now Foods, um, Marriott Hotels, Wyndham Hotels. These are not small companies and they've definitely looked at technology for years. We were able to utilize a new type of connectivity layer called LoRa or LoRaWAN, which is a long range radio. And long range radio allows signal to be carried and pushed through densely insulated environments, including the iron and steel siding of a fridge or freezer. And so we were able to use this new connectivity layer that's emerged in the last six years uh, to build sensors that can get signal out of environments that have historically been very hard to monitor. And so that's the base layer of Therma. It's a hardware enabled data platform. So with wireless sensors, these sensors are about the size of a deck of cards. They can be dropped in place. An 18-year-old associate in a store can set them up. Then we have a series of software layers. We have a web application where we have reporting and dashboarding and alert and notification setups. We have mobile apps on iOS and Android that let users and team members see when issues come up, change settings, manage their locations, label sensors, uh, and really kind of run their locations and, and workflow around uh, the refrigeration assets. And then on top of that, we've been building uh, data tools. So uh, tools including insights, which are reports that use applied machine learning uh, and uh, human-assisted applied ML. So tagging data trends or data patterns, and then figuring out or identifying scenarios that they represent. For example, a year ago, we had a 75 location quick serve restaurant chain, one of the top two chains in the country. Um, we had a franchisee owner that was using Therma in a few locations. He was testing it out. Uh, we noticed a trend in the data that every Friday between 2 and 4 a.m., there was a spike in the temperature in the main walk-in for an hour and a half or two hours. And it happened week after week. And we saw this in the data and one of our analysts tagged it and said, this looks like an outlier. It could be a cleaning crew coming in or an inventory delivery. And so we flagged that in a data insight report to the director of operations and the owner. They looked at it and discovered that it was in fact a cleaning crew coming in and leaving the door propped open for two hours, burning a bunch of shelf life and burning energy. And that's an example of the kind of data that you can you know, utilize to change operations. They had a conversation with that cleaning team and essentially um, you know, they were able to stop that behavior and save money and save on the energy bill. And of course, shelf life 
And so those are the kinds of patterns, and there's many of them, that we see in refrigeration data around uh, energy set points, whether stuff's being overcooled, uh, around operating inefficiency, when door jams might be loose, when stuff might be left open. Um, and because there are so many refrigeration units in the world, uh, the more data we collect, the more powerful the insights get. So you can imagine learning if you own a series of pizza joints or if you own a series of sub shops, you might be able to find out what's the right set point I should have for my products. And you can use an, a model location that's kind of optimizing their energy spend and shelf life to then set the controls for all the other locations. And so that's the kind of stuff that the data layer allows us to do. And so Therma is a hardware enabled data platform that uses low cost, reliable sensors to monitor and alert and help drive you know, efficiencies and, and avoid spoilage events. And we're working towards additional functionality on top of that, but that's kind of where the platform is today. Now, is this, so you're talking about the, like you're compiling data for your clients, different companies. Is there a way that you can use this data toward the companies that make the refrigeration equipment to make it more efficient? Is that part of it or not yet? That's absolutely a, a direction that we're headed. Uh, we are seeing lots of opportunity right now to retrofit and to monitor and optimize the existing refrigeration that's in the, in the business world, and the existing refrigeration that's already in place out there. Um, and there's a lot of it. There are you know, roughly 90 million refrigeration units in the commercial world. Is about 1.4 billion refrigeration units in the residential world. <laughs> so there's a lot of it. We're just talking about the 90 million business refrigeration units. We're not working with consumers and homes. So up that 90 million, the vast majority are unmonitored today. And they have a long life. These assets can last 10 to 20 years. So today, a lot of what we're doing is trying to optimize existing assets. But in the future, we absolutely think this kind of technology could and should be embedded into the next generation of refrigeration. You know, when it's 2040 and you're purchasing a fridge, freezer, display case, low boy for your pizza shop or your uh, grocery store or your convenience uh, store, you should have embedded monitoring and optimization. And similar to, I think, other areas of the world that are using IoT, like smart homes uh, and, and smart buildings, right now, a lot of those products, you know, and Amazon Ring, uh, Google Nest. Right now, they're basically being added on by homeowners. But one day, they'll probably come built in to the homes themselves. And so, you know, we're in this transitional phase where we're trying to make the built environment smarter and and more efficient. And we're just trying to speed that up. Can you tell me about your professional background and what led you to found Therma? Absolutely. I um, I never imagined I'd be working in in smart cold chain when I got started. Uh, and my life, you know, and my my kind of unfolding, as my dad likes to say, is uh, you know, life is a bit like a, a a winding road where you don't really know where the twists and turns are taking you, but when you look back, it all makes sense in the rearview mirror, you know. And so, looking back on the twists and turns, I went to college at Harvard, worked my first role out of school at uh, a big private equity and hedge fund called DE Shaw, where I really learned about investing and investing principles. I ended up going back to grad school at Harvard to go to law school, because um, I wanted to work closer to public policy and governance and, and really bring um, some skills um, you know, together around how to 
more effectively build and, and, and manage policy. And I ended up working briefly in DC as an intern and then a fellow in the White House in the first Obama administration, uh, where I had you know, the privilege of working with a wonderful group of humans on economic policy. That's the, the team I worked on, the National Economic Council team. And I met uh, through that work, a woman named Beth Novick. She was the deputy CTO uh, in the first Obama White House. And she was also, as she jokes, a recovering lawyer, um, the best kind. Uh, she had gone to Harvard 10 years before me. And um, Beth had taught herself how to write code kind of before it was cool in the, in the late 90s. Um, and so she was working on the intersection of tech, law, and government, and trying to get people to think about building technology for problems around law, compliance, regulation, governance, areas that are really important for the world, but were largely untouched by so much of the technology that was being built. And I got really excited, and so that made sense to me. I read her book, WikiGov, and I joined her to start a center at NYU where she teaches uh, called the GovLab. I was one of the co-founders there. And I met my colleague, Aaron Cohen, who became my co-founder in this venture at the GovLab. He was our third co-founder there, and he was teaching at NYU at the time. He's a serial entrepreneur, now in his mid-50s. This is his sixth startup. He'd been working in startups since the late 90s. And so he'd taken a break to teach at NYU a class called the history of internet media. And I was just amazed that the, we're old enough that there's a class you know, essentially on the history of the internet. Um, but uh, that's the path that brought me into te tech and technology entrepreneurship. Uh, so I came from finance and law and government. And Aaron and I started working together on a precursor to Therma, a company called Co-Inspect, Collaborative Inspect, which uh, was our first product. And uh, we started working on compliance and health and safety uh, in 2015. And around that time, Chipotle had the series of food safety issues. Uh, and that, that uh, really rocked the, the, the food safety world and, and many, many consumer brands in late 15, early 16. And so we ended up in the food industry, uh, scaling Coinspect, got it to scale in uh, you know, multiple parts of the food supply chain as a way to replace pen and paper with mobile tools. And uh, after getting to you know, a little bit of scale, we had around 5,000 locations using Coinspect. We were watching our users using our mobile app in year three. And we noticed that one of the things they were focused on checking was the temperature of the product. And we were trying to figure out ways to improve that product and help the customer, help the user out. And we realized I was talking uh, with one of my colleagues in the field, uh, our, our head of engineering and now CTO, Andrew Hager. He looked at me at one point as we were watching users using this mobile app, and he said, look, I don't think a mobile app is the right way to solve this. It's definitely better than paper, but people still have to check this stuff <laughs> multiple times a day. What if we could use a sensor to automate it entirely? And Andrew had a background in IoT and sensors. And so he spent a little bit of time researching the latest technology frameworks and, and really came back and said, I think we can do it with a new type of sensor called LoRa. I think we can get a signal out. And so that's what led us to start working on temperature, humidity, energy, remote monitoring application, which became Therma. And so in, 20, in late 2019, we put the first couple of Therma sensors in the world, and now we have around 7,000 uh, two years later. And so we're, we're trying to get to 100,000 a couple of years from now. There's 90 million refrigeration units in the business world, most of which are unmonitored. So 7,000 is not even you know really beginning to scratch the surface, but it's been really exciting to bring together a team and, and, and my own background in compliance and safety 
and uh, marry that with the, our, our commitment to impact. The reason Aaron and I started working in tech in the first place was we wanted to build tech for good, tech that would have positive social impact. And now we've moved from compliance and safety into climate and sustainability. And we really were pulled into that by the urgency of the times and the urgency of customers' needs. Most of our early customers at Therma had also used our Co-Inspect product. And when we asked them what they were getting out of Therma, they said, well, this is helping us catch food waste and loss events and helping us improve our energy bill around our refrigerators. And we realized that refrigeration had a huge climate impact. And that was new to me. I had not come from the refrigeration world uh, or the supply chain world. And as I started reading about refrigeration a couple of years ago, it was startling to me what a climate and what an emissions impact the cold chain has. And, um, and the inefficiencies were also remarkable, the kinds of loss events and waste and overcooling that happens at some of the most uh, well-known brands. Uh, so that was the path that brought us into Therma and definitely a, a series of, of, of you know, twists in the road, but it's been very rewarding. And I think it's, you know, in many ways, we wouldn't have been here without having done the work we did with Co-Inspect and without uh, having started out to build tech for good. It's interesting. It seems like it's obviously not an easy thing to build, what, how you've gone through the, these iterations of the company and where you are now. But it's one of those things where it seems like it just should have been there all along. Um, why, why wasn't it there? Um, so you spoke about you know, your 7,000 um, units and the goal to scale to 100K in two more years. How do smaller businesses fit into this? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, we have two ways that we bring our product into the world in terms of um, growth and, and, and sales. We have a direct sales effort where we have a team that actually identifies potential partners, gets to know them, whether that's through conferences, uh, teleconferences, uh, demos, and, and cultivates relationships and gets people to, to test out the software and hardware. Uh, but we also have an e-commerce uh, business where we have essentially an online uh, sales model, which allows anyone to go online, go to our website and purchase sensors uh, without having to invest upfront in, a suit, in, in hardware, without having to even talk to a human. And at this point, that's, that's a very significant growth driver for us. Uh, that e-commerce uh, platform uh, has allowed us to serve and to start working with hundreds of small businesses. Uh, so we have many, many folks that have, you know, a couple of locations, a food truck, a bowling alley, one cafeteria, a grocery store, a local bodega, um, a seafood, uh, you know, shop, all kinds of businesses, pet stores, funeral homes, you know, just a whole range of businesses uh, where, you know, folks are finding us online through advertising or through content, going to our website and purchasing sensors, um, you know, very, very affordably. Our model is really transparent, really simple. It's $10 a month per sensor. Uh, there's no hardware cost, so it's just a monitoring fee. And um, you know, there's an annual pricing, which is discounted. And if you have multiple locations, uh, there's a discount around volume. So it's really meant to be very lightweight, very affordable. You can purchase as many sensors as you have pieces of refrigeration in your location. And that's allowed us to get in front of a lot of small businesses recently. Since we know cost is always you know, a hurdle to adoption. So that's really wonderful to hear. Um, so you touched upon the cold chain 
uh, at the beginning of our talk. And I wanted to know how has the pandemic and the highlighted supply chain challenges helped or hampered Therma's adoption, reach, and growth? Very top of mind, I think, for, for us as for every other you know, business that's been trying to navigate the last year and a half. You know, and um, I think it continues to be one of those questions that everyone is still asking. You know, how will we get through this and what, what should we do? We've been very fortunate to have seen a lot of growth uh, in the midst of the pandemic because the kinds of problems that Therma helped solve have become more top of mind for businesses during the pandemic. So in 2020, when we first really started commercializing Therma, many, many locations had to shut suddenly, unexpectedly, or had to reduce staffing because of cost containment and um, labor shortages. And so the need to monitor remotely and manage remotely and ensure that inventory was protected and that product and guests were protected became even more paramount. So lots and lots of businesses last year in 2020 signed up for Therma as a way to manage and monitor their locations and get peace of mind with sudden closures and unexpected staffing shifts. And so we had a huge um, increase in business uh, because of that. We also had a significant increase in business because um, food and, and, and food delivery and food uh, online sales started to boom. And so we sell into companies uh, that do food distribution and food warehousing as well. And they were booming. I mean, they had a really busy couple of, they've had a really busy couple of years. So many people are, you know, buying, you know, online groceries now or, you know, ordering food for delivery. And so the e-commerce, um, food e-commerce has been such a big driver of the cold chain. And it's not just us, cold storage warehouses are booming. Cold chain, um, you know, distributors are booming because there's a need to get more product to people who are no longer going to the grocery store as often or no longer going to restaurants as often. And then I think the, you know, the, the fact that we are working on emissions reduction uh, as well as have an ROI around the product, the fact that you can reasonably and credibly say, hey, I'm, I'm reducing my carbon footprint and we can actually measure the number of waste and spoilage events that we prevent per year per location. And we're doing that so we can actually put a CO2 emissions estimate around Therma. Uh, I think a lot of businesses in the last two years have been and are continuing to embrace pro-climate tools and pro-climate solutions, if only because the urgency has never been greater. I mean, we're living through record numbers of weather events, floods, you know, mudslides, wildfires, um, and, you know, I think I live in, in the Bay Area in San Francisco, and I grew up in California, a couple of hours south of here, you know, and I think many people thought that these were far away events and far off events that might happen, you know, to their kids' kids or in some other distant part of the world. But, you know, last year, we had a day in the Bay Area where you couldn't see the sun. Uh, literally, the sun didn't come out that day. And it was, you know, many of my friends kind of described it as it felt apocalyptic. It was really scary. And, you know, that was because of wildfires and, uh, you know, some of the climate uh, extreme weather we're getting. So I think it's become really top of mind for individuals and for businesses and for policymakers. Um, and, you know, I had, I had the privilege of speaking 
um, at the uh, New York Times stage for the UN Glasgow COP26 summit a couple of weeks ago. And we were one of the few companies, I was there speaking on behalf of Therma, as was my co-founder, Aaron. Uh, we were one of the few companies at, uh, at, at the event that was working on cooling uh, in particular and, and cold chain. Lots of folks working on different parts of climate and climate technology, uh, you know, batteries, electric vehicles, micromobility, food alternatives. Um, but cooling is in many ways, I think, under-innovated and underappreciated as a climate driver. And so I think businesses are starting to take notice of that. Hey, this might be a way for us to save some money and also do something positive. Do you think since you did have that your stint working for government, do you think that industries will push, regardless of the political party in power, will push to make policies and enact changes that are required for us to continue to exist on this planet? Absolutely. I, I believe very strongly that uh, human you know, civilization, human society, humans as individuals are resilient and that we can and will solve crises of our times. And we have done that again and again uh, throughout history. And that's not to say um, it's not gonna be hard and that we can't do it without rallying together and taking action immediately. But I think business owners, business leaders, employees, and as importantly, shareholders and you know, individuals who are also shareholders and consumers will and are pushing companies to take steps to reduce emissions, take steps to become more sustainable. I think people are voting with their pocketbooks. I think people are voting with where and how they spend which brands they promote and, and, and celebrate. And so I think uh, you see this shift at the consumer level and a shift at the shareholder level and thus a shift at the investor level, public and private. And that definitely motivates business owners and business leaders because even in a purely capitalistic model, you have to be responsive to your consumers. You have to be responsive to your shareholders. And so... I think there's a lot of economic interest in doing the right thing. And companies that do embrace the climate challenge and take on pro-climate initiatives, reduce their carbon footprint and celebrate it are gonna have outsized success. I think they're gonna have higher returns per share than companies that don't. And I actually think if you're a company that isn't embracing um, you know, the climate challenge and, and taking action, it's gonna be very hard over the next decade, decade and a half to resonate with shareholders and consumers. Yeah, I would agree. How are major restaurants making sustainability part of their business models? A lot of restaurants are taking actions within their operations and really starting to look at sources of waste and sources of inefficiency that could be addressed, you know, I'd say in the near term. I think some of the examples are, and you know, this is not exhaustive, but just a few, you see a lot more companies embracing meat alternatives, for instance. And that's, I think, a great thing for many reasons. It's a great thing for consumer choice. It's a great thing for animal welfare. It's a great thing also for the planet because it's a lot less resource intensive in some cases. 
And so that's an example where menus are shifting. Um, and that's something that a lot of companies, I think, at the, at the national level are really embracing. Uh, you also see innovations around, uh, you know, things like compostable you know, cutlery and uh, the joke about paper straws in certain cities. But there is a certain appreciation that we don't need to throw a bunch of plastic into the ground for 10,000 years. We can use, you know, more modern materials to get, you know, guests to have a great experience. And then I think businesses are starting to make more structural investments that require capital expenditure. You do have companies that are embracing technologies like uh, smart kitchen tools that can turn, you know, uh, lights and HVAC, you know, heating and ventilation, air conditioning systems on and off more um, automatically and more efficiently. You have companies embracing uh, supply chain, um, you know, areas of supply chain sustainability by changing how and where they source certain products or by requiring suppliers to go through more stringent and more rigorous audits to demonstrate that they're actually doing things sustainably. So I think there's a lot of opportunity and, and some investment in cleaning up and improving the sustainability of the supply chain. And that's ultimately where a lot of the emissions comes from. You know, the in-store, in-location emissions is near-term and actionable but the supply chain is a big part of the long-term solution. And you know, tools like Therma are getting a lot of interest from national brands. We've been really fortunate. We're, we're a small team. Um, you know, this is, you know, the, we've just kind of gone through two years of building and scaling Therma. We're about 60 people. There's a lot of opportunity. We're talking to some of the biggest companies in food, in retail, in hospitality. So I think people are looking for solutions. Just wanted to ask you a little bit about how, since you are VC-backed, how have investors embraced you and Therma and what challenges or opportunities have you discovered through the fundraising process? Absolutely. Um, I have spent a fair bit of time on the fundraising process the last few years. It's definitely one of the things that as a CEO and founder, one has to do. I'm very fortunate to have great investors behind us. And I say that, um, you know, having been an investor and I'd say, you know, half of my friends are or have been venture capitalists or private equity investors. I feel like I know all too many people in the, in the capital markets. But the, um, you know, the, the challenges I think of finding great investors is people who have conviction and will see you, you know, see you through and see a mission through when things get hard. And you know, in early 2020, we almost ran out of capital. We were down to a couple of weeks of cash uh, on the balance sheet. I mean, a few weeks of cash. And it was literally at the point of, uh, I was writing a letter to our team saying you know, how proud I was of the effort and how disappointed I was about the timing. Uh, we had this new product called Therma that had just gotten off the ground in Q1. And we were selling it to the food industry, primarily to restaurants and hospitality players. And then the world shut down. Um, and we were raising around. We were raising around in December and January, December 19, January 20. Um, and we had a term sheet in February of 2020. We were pretty comfortable. We thought we were going to easily you know, raise that round. And then in early March, everything you know, kind of went sideways. 
And so that term sheet went away and we could not find new investors. It was extremely hard to get someone to back a new product being sold into a food or hospitality market amidst one of the least predictable moments that industry has had in the last several decades. Uh, and our current investors and our lead investors came through and we were able to pull together around in April. It was uh, enough to get us going again and to keep momentum going for Therma. That gave us enough time to sh show that the product had market fit and to get more and more customers on board in the summer. And in the summer, we discovered that we could sell the product to the restaurants that were doing well, which were largely restaurants that had strong takeout or drive-through. Um, and so we were able to get some traction. And then we raised another round in the winter of 20 and spring of 21, which has allowed us to grow and start to really put some scale. And we're now gearing up for another raise uh, in, in 22. But I look back at the, some of those days in, you know, in the early period when COVID was unfolding, and I feel um, both a sense of um, you know, uh, gratitude and a, you know, a real sense of humility. Gratitude for the conviction that our investors had in coming through and giving us capital at a time when many people would have said it's irrational or very, very questionable, but they really believed that we would figure it out. And a humility, because I do think a lot of uh, fundraising and a lot of company building is about serendipity as much as it is about um, grit and hustle. And so many times I've wanted to give up. I mean, many, many, many days. And I started the company as just one person, you know, one and a half, you know, me and a part-time person. And going, you know, we had $50,000 in our first year's budget. That was our annual budget, um, you know, which doesn't get you very far in the Bay Area. Um, and, you know, that was very humbling. And there were times when we almost went under, you know, then 2020 was one of them. And I think the company's come out stronger. I've definitely grown as a, as a human, uh, but our investors were a part of that. And, and their support and the conviction is something I, I think I now really look for and appreciate in partners. Wow. So what's your budget now? Are you allowed to say from 50,000 to? You know, it's, it's definitely, um, it's scaling to an order of magnitude of that at this point. So we're, you know, we're turned further. I think that's natural. If, if startups start succeeding, you do have to put more capital to work. We're building yeah. a lot more product now. We're trying to scale to, as, as I mentioned, tens of thousands of units. So it's, it's definitely a capital intensive effort, um, especially to hire the best people, to hire people who are really talented at product design, at marketing, at uh, you know, full stack engineering. That's a very, very uh, important and difficult set of skills to bring together quickly. And I think right now, you know, one of the things we need to do is be competitive because there's a lot of technology startups out there that are trying to build you know, products and teams. I think that the budget aside, our climate impact is something that really separates us from a lot of other startups. The fact that we're working so directly on emissions reduction and Aaron and I have pretty publicly and pretty regularly made clear that our motivation is really around impact first and you know, economic success second. Um, I think that resonates with certain people. And you know, so that, that definitely gets gets uh, the, you know, the kinds of people we want to work with to, to talk to us. 
Yeah, I would say that I wanted to follow up about your, because um, you said you're in business to do good and impact and purpose matter to you as an individual and as, you know, an entrepreneur. So how does sustainability, well, what is your definition of sustainability, first of all, and how does that present itself in Thermo's operations and work culture? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, such a thoughtful and, and I think hard uh, theme, uh, you know, to, to kind of encapsulate sustainability. What, you know, what is sustainability? I, I kind of get philosophical about it. I think about my grandmother who um, is still alive. My mom's mom, she's 92. And over the last 20 years, she's a physician. She's a retired physician. Uh, she was one of the first female doctors in India Oh, wow. uh, where she's from. And she talks a lot about um, Vedantic principles. That's kind of a, a, a kind of a, a type of uh, spiritual practice within Hinduism. that's really about balance and alignment and finding ways of being centered in oneself and in, in the energies around how we exist as souls relative to the universe, relative to nature, to other souls. And I think sustainability in some deep sense is about balance, um, a balancing of competing interests, a balancing of competing desires. Uh, we all want, you know, there's a famous marshmallow test, you know, where they give kids this marshmallow and the kids that could resist the marshmallow for the longest had like predict, you know, correlated highly with like SAT results and uh, grades. And there's a certain kind of, we all want to like, grab that marshmallow. We all want the dopamine hit. We all want the immediate gratification. Um, and when you take that at scale and build economic models and you know corporate models and product campaigns around that, you end up with you know, lots of sugar, lots of salt, lots of fat in our diets. You end up with lots of um, you know, challenges with addiction. You end up with lots and lots of problems at scale. And I think uh, you end up with resource consumption that cannot be sustained by the reproduction of those resources. And I think that's what's happening with the planet. We are extracting resources at a rate and at a pace that we cannot sustain. Like literally the natural systems cannot sustain it. And so that you see that with fishing and fishery stocks being depleted. You see it with biodiversity losses. Uh, you see it with the ways in which certain you know into you know certain pathogens and um you know resistant strains are emerging and i think that uh, at the at the at the fundamental level it's a lack of balance that stands out for me in all of those problems like how do we get to a more dynamic equilibrium that is something we can continue into the future and so to me that the deepest kind of element around sustainability is about balance um, I do think that's true in other ways beyond ecological. Ecological is, I think, often used, and I often think of ecological sustainability because of what's happening in the world, uh, physical world. But there's also, I think, a certain amount of uh, sustainability in how you build a team and who joins a team and how you sustain a team. And so one thing we've been taking a lot of uh, active uh, interest in and focus on is how do we build a balanced team? How do we ensure that our team represents you know, the broader community? Um, I have a very effective and, and brilliant uh, colleague who is our COO, 
uh, Amber Hager. And Amber has uh, really driven a lot of the efforts around, and she, she's very open about this and passionate about this, about um, you know, the, the lack of females in technology companies and, and female representation in technology leadership. And that's something that we've been working actively on, trying to recruit and also to sustain a culture that enables that type of diversity. But there's you know, many, many dimensions of sustainability. I think uh, you know, there's the external impact of the work, there's the internal composition of the team. Maybe you know, at, at the core, it's about finding people who themselves seek that balance. And I think our team is very mission-driven. We had our annual holiday party last night, actually, uh, in San Francisco. It was amazing to see the team together. Uh, we'd, uh, we'd not met up very often because of COVID. And I was just reminded of how socially driven and mission driven each individual is. We were joking about a camping trip as our next uh, offsite in the spring. And of course, like within a minute of saying it, like everyone was like, yeah, let's do it. I'm in, let's go backpacking. Let's go in the back country. How far off of the grid can we get? And it was, like, you know, it was a kind of representation of a certain temperament. So yeah, I think sustainability has many facets. Um, those are a few that, that, that resonate for me. No, I agree with you. I think it's incredibly broad and touches every aspect of our lives. Um, so I thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. Um, lastly, if you could just share for listeners how they can learn more about Therma and any other thoughts that you would like to share. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure, Katie, to be on today. I'm very excited to talk to folks that want to learn more about Therma. Uh, you can absolutely message me directly. My email is monik, M-A-N-I-K, at hellotherma.com. That's monik at hellotherma.com. Uh, find us online at hellotherma.com. We're hiring. We have over a dozen open roles on the team. Uh, we're hiring remote. Uh, and the company's based in the San Francisco Bay Area, but uh, we are hiring remote. Check out our jobs on our website. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about the products, or testing them out, you can get started very quickly. There's no uh, upfront fees. It's just a uh, simple order form and you can have sensors shipped out to you. And if you'd like to learn more about our work or our talk, please do reach out to me at any time. We'd love to chat. Happy holidays. Thank you so much, Monik. This has been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed it as well. Thank you for the time. We appreciate our loyal Impact Report listeners and hope you can help us spread the word about the series and the important sustainability work of our guests. Please rate and review the Impact Report wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you were inspired by this conversation, share a screenshot to your Instagram account and tag Impact Report Podcast. For more information about the topics discussed in today's episode, visit hellotherma.com. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, December 31st. We'll be speaking with Al Iannuzzi, Vice President of Sustainability at the Estee Lauder Companies. 
Interested in learning how you can launch a high-impact, purpose-driven career in sustainability? Check out the resources page from the Bard Graduate Programs in Sustainability for access to free resources to jumpstart your career in sustainability. Hear from leaders in the fields of climate change, consulting, impact finance, fashion, circular economy, and more about how they launched their careers and the tips they have for you to join their industry. Visit gps.bard.edu slash resources today.